This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Literary Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Brett Edelin, and today I am joined by Anahid Nersessian. Hello. Hello. Um, Anahid is a professor in the Department of English at the University of California, Los Angeles, um, and today we are discussing her amazing, amazing book that I, I truly love, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Um, Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse. Um, it's out through the University of Chicago Press. Um, did it? Which, did it come out 2020 or 2021? It came out in it February up. of 2021. Okay, very recent, very timely. Um, and I, I don't. That's all I can say before we jump into the conversation. Um, and before we get to the book, um, I want to ask Anahid what brought you not just to writing this book, but maybe to writing and literature in general. This is something you kind of touch on in the book itself. Um, and I, it was a lovely story, and I, I'd like to hear more about it. Well, in a way, the answer to both of those questions is the same. You know, it was Keats who brought me to literature in the first place. And then, you know, the, the book is about Keats as well. And so in the introduction to the book, I talk about the ways in which I discovered Keats's letters in a, a book of love poetry in my father's office and became completely enamored with him and with his story before I had really even read any of his poetry. And then, of course, I read the poetry and it was all completely over my head. But I nonetheless felt very connected to him and very connected to, you know, the romantic movement, I think, in general. That was poetry that I very quickly responded to as I began to read more of it. And so I knew from a pretty early age, probably an embarrassingly early age, that I wanted to be a literary critic or professor, or as I thought about it at the time, you know, a, a person that teaches college. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, clear to me that those were identities that could be united in any kind of productive way, though, as I got older, and I realized that, you know, teaching college and being a literary critic could be one in the same kind of task where you could do them both under the umbrella of the same job. So I just kind of stumbled into academia, I think, and, um, you know, was an English major in college, went to graduate school right after college, got my PhD in English. And interestingly enough, I was I was thinking about this a couple days ago, because later today, I'm actually giving a talk at or via Zoom um, at my alma mater, the University of Chicago. And I was reminiscing about how when I came to Chicago, it was to study romantic poetry. But at the time, poetry was not really done at 
the University of Chicago in the English department. I mean, you know, anyone who's been in graduate school knows that there are trends in departments and graduate programs, just like there are trends in the wider world of media. And so it was a time when people had sort of lost interest in poetry. People were very, very interested in the rise of the novel and in, you know, questions of, of character, questions of plot. And that just wasn't, you know, what I had come to graduate school to do. And so I felt very disoriented as a graduate student and, and felt like I had to make up a new program for myself while also trying to maintain a commitment to the things that had brought me to literature in the first place. So that was a bit tricky, but nonetheless, I persisted and have been able to, you know, write about poetry more and more and more and more because poetry is really my first love while also maintaining a pretty solid grounding in the kinds of theoretical and conceptual questions that I took on when I was a graduate student, many of them having to do with um, questions of political economy and, um, you know, just sort of about capital and the and the emergence of, of capital and its consequences for culture as, you know, as well as its consequences for human beings and for the planet. So uh, this book really, the Keats book, I mean, you know, really represents, I think, the core of, of what I do and also the core of why I do it. So I'm happy to have been able to arrive back at where I started with this book. And that's, that's just, it's something that makes me happy. I, I often say to myself, you know, if I never write anything again, which unfortunately I don't think I'll get away with, but if I never write anything again, I'll be happy because I finally did sort of what I set out to do. That's a beautiful answer. Um, and it, it, it's interesting um, in the sense that, you know, you just, you, your other book, um, the calamity of form. Yeah, the calamity um, form. Yeah, it just came out too. It just came out, and that represents. I mean, it's it's it has similar engagements and the the like poetry and and um, political economy as well as uh, a question about the earth and the ecological. Mm -hmm. um, and I just I also read that, and it's how these two books kind of walk hand in hand, but they're they're not the same. And I I, I mean I don't want to pick a favorite, but like this book. <laughs> Keats's Odes, it got me. Um, and I, I think a lot of it is about the form and about how you're mm -hmm. talking about poetry. And I think we'll we'll talk about that later. But something I really want to ask about is, so the, the subtitle of the book is A Lover's Discourse. Mm -hmm. And that is um, a little, a nod, um, or maybe not a nod, maybe a huge wave to Roland <laughs> um, uh, Balfe, um, the, the French critic. Um, his novel, or not his novel, his book, um, Fragment d'un discours amoureux, um, which is translated as a lover's discourse, and they, they kind of drop the fragments yeah. part. Um, tragically, because fragments, yeah, fragments is such an important part of the, the book and the concept of yeah. the book. Yeah. Yeah. And in it, so in the book, which you quote, um, you, you write, um, Bauer suggests that love is marked by a strange compulsion to speak to those who aren't there, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a preposterous situation. And I, I think this is kind of something that the core of this book is centered around. You're, you're talking to Keats and about Keats and, and kind of bringing him out. And I think that's something that all of literature is, or literary studies is. That's what, I don't know, unless you're working in the contemporary, which you don't do and I don't do, um, you're talking about people who are dead. And I, I'm wondering if you just, if you have thoughts about how maybe the apostrophic form mm -hmm. of this of this of your text came about and maybe what that means in relation to the fact that you're talking about Keats's odes which are also talking to um someone who's not there 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, apostrophe is definitely the master figure of the book. And so the most straightforward definition of apostrophe is that it's an address to someone or something that can't answer back. And as you just said, really, you know, nicely, that, of course, is the condition of all literary criticism and all reading to some extent that engages with historical literature or literature that is at a certain kind of historical distance from us. So absolutely. And then I think and I say this in the book, of course, that you know, I also have another kind of distance from this material in addition to historical distance from the material, namely that we're talking, if we're talking about Keats, about poetry written by, you know, dead white dude, you know, in white, dead white English dude, you know, who was alive for a very brief amount of time in the late 18th and early 19th century. And I'm a, a woman, you know, my father um, was an immigrant from Iran. I, I have you know, sort of left-wing politics as Keats did too. I'm, you know, committed feminist, et cetera, et cetera. So there are lots of kinds of estrangement between me and Keats and more generally between me and the material to which I've devoted my life. So I'm interested in in that kind of, um, I, I'm interested in the impossibility of response that those conditions necessitate. So, you know, I can understand Keats or I can enter into a certain kind of sympathy with Keats and he would never have been able to enter into that kind of sympathy with me. The way that I put that in the book is the literature that I love couldn't imagine me. And that's a really interesting situation to find yourself in, you know, and um, it's not quite what Bart is talking about when he's talking about the love object as always being, you know, at a certain kind of distance from you. Bart is coming out of a hyper psychoanalytic context, right? So for him, there's a sense that the person you love is in, in some way always a fantasy. And so, of course, you can never access them. And of course, they can never access you. I actually don't know if I believe that about love. <laughs> I, you know, I completely understand the logic of the argument. I don't know if I quite believe it, though, of course, generates a lot of beautiful meditations in, in Bart's lover's discourse. But, you know, my relationship to romantic literature, capital R romantic literatures, is a much more fundamental sense of completely being uh, impossible in that literature, right? That literature can't imagine me. It can't, it can't ever have thought somebody like me would exist and be reading about it and talking about it. And there are people even today for whom that's not true. So I think that there are a lot of people who write about romantic poetry who are, you know, white English men and their relationship to that material is going to be much more straightforward, much less complicated. So, you know, that sense of distance, that sense of non-reciprocity, that sense of uh, kind of insurmountable invisibility is runs, I think, throughout the book. But, you know, my hope is that it doesn't have to be a dead end, rather that being outside of a literature in the way that I am outside of romantic poetry can, in fact, be a way into that poetry. It could be a present new opportunities to understand it that other people might not necessarily be able to avail themselves of. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in what those, um, again, those sort of failures of reciprocity make possible as opposed to what they shut down. But the Bart is, I mean, who doesn't love, you know, a lover's discourse? Anyone who who doesn't love that book who's read it? So it was yeah. a book that I was really grateful to be able to come back to because I just remember reading it when I was in college and thinking, this is the most profound thing I've ever come across, you know? Um, so it's a book that's close to my heart. Yeah, I have recommended it probably to, to too many people at this point. Um, anytime someone has loved 
problems in my life. I'm like, just go read this by bars. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm like, I don't know if it'll make you feel better. Yeah. But it'll give you a language to articulate all of what you're feeling. Yeah. And of course, what's so funny about that is everyone who reads it, if they're of a certain temperament, which I imagine, you know, you and your friends probably are, (laughs) me and my friends probably are, (laughs) you know, everyone who reads that book, no matter what their own situation is completely identifies with everything Bart says. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it doesn't matter what, um, you know, who you're in love with, how long you've been in love, if you're together, if you're broken up, if you're in a kind of it's complicated situation, it completely doesn't matter. Everyone reads a lover's discourse and says, yes, absolutely. This is the truth of my experience. (laughs) So it has this sort of, you know, curious universality. And that's something that Bart is interested in, right? That we, when we're in love, we think that we're in a completely remarkable circumstance that no one has ever been in before. And everything about our love affair is, you know, absolutely new and completely unconventional. And Bart, you know, sort of comes along to say, no, it's actually the conventionality of love and the fact that it more or less is always the same for everyone that makes it so interesting. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I could, we could just completely pivot this interview to being about Barth's instead, but I, I want to stay with Keats. That's the goal. That's the goal. Um, so I want to go back to something that we were, we were talking about a little earlier um, about, I don't know, you, you write that you, you hoped that the books that you loved needed you more than mm-hmm. you needed them. And I think and about them not being able to imagine you. Mm-hmm. And I, how do you think that is, how that relates to the negative capability of Keats? And if, like maybe if you could give a little definition of, of negative capability. Yeah, so it's tricky to give a definition of negative capability because Keats himself never really defines it clearly, even though it's the notion of his that is probably the best known and the most popular and also I think the least understood. So people often, you know, mistakenly assume that negative capability means something like a kind of um, you know, liberal neutrality, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. they they think that it means you understand all perspectives, that you don't judge, you don't judge people, you don't judge experiences, you don't judge political ideologies. That's totally wrong because Keats himself was always judging people, experiences, and certainly political ideologies and was, and I, I kind of said this earlier, Keats, you know, was um, quite a, the political radical. And that's something that Keats scholars know but that the wider public probably doesn't really understand or appreciate about Keats as much as they might. Um, So for Keats, negative capability is really about the, um, his own, first and foremost, his own inability to maintain a sense of sovereignty in himself and in his own personality when he's around other people. So he describes it as a sense of being pressed upon by the identities of others and also by the identities of things. So elsewhere, he says, you know, oh, like the sun, the moon, right, weather, all these things seem to invade his being and possess it utterly so that he can't actually, in his words, come home to himself. And for him, this is the uh, ideal condition from which to begin writing poetry, you know, this sense that you 
yourself have utterly disappeared, been utterly elided, and now belong absolutely to a world of sensations, as he often says, you know, um, oh, for a, a world of sensations, or maybe oh, it's re- oh, for a life of sensations rather than of thoughts, um, that you're in a world of, ins- of sensation and your responsibility is to represent those sensations in such a way that makes them palpable to others and in such a way that others can now share in them. And, you know, that's a very complicated idea. And in you know, in my opinion, it's also very close to the way that Keats describes his relationship to the woman that he was in love with, Fanny Braun. So in one of his letters to her, he tells her, you have absorbed me. I have a sensation as though I were dissolving. So for him, negative capability is always wrapped up in love, is always wrapped up in eroticism, is always wrapped up in desire, whether or not it's happening to him in a situation that we would describe as a romantic situation. You know, it's a kind of, there's an, to use a very academic turn of phrase, there's an erotics to negative capability that's essential to everything that Keats does. And so, oh, you were saying, how does my own, how how does my own, um, you know, relationship to the material uh, involve a certain kind of negative capability, you know? Or even not just your own. I think. <laughs> yeah. All of us. the idea. Yeah. We're all, none of us are Keats. Um, and I think there's like, like reading this from any subject position, there's, there's a difference. And it's like, I think it, it comes, especially with romantic poetry and, and modern or contemporary readers just being like, well, I don't get this. Like this is weird language, but there's something that is happening. Yeah. That, that, it's kind of doing something to you that might be a negative capability of it. I hope so. I mean, you know, it's funny you say none of us are Keats. And the first thing I thought was, well, you should come to a romanticism conference because I promise you there are a lot of people <laughs> there, there of- that, that really feel that they are Keats, you know. And this actually goes back to what I was saying earlier about, um, you know, there are a lot of like white men who absolutely feel that their um, encounter with Keats's poetry is totally seamless Right. And they really feel like they are Keats. So when that movie, that Jane Campion movie called Bright Star came out, mm. there was a real uproar in the romanticist community, particularly among, uh, you know, you guessed it, white men who felt that the representation of Keats in that movie was not what they would have wished it to be. Um, there was, in fact, an, a couple of there were, in fact, a couple of articles written about that movie by men who study Keats, by Keats, male Keats scholars, essentially saying in not so many words that the portrayal of Keats by the actor Ben Wishaw was too effeminate. And that criticism actually has a a history within Keats studies that for a long time, Keats was considered to be a kind of, um, well, I don't want to say an ineffectual angel because that's actually a description of Percy Shelley, but Keats was also considered to be something of an ineffectual angel, you know, and, and, um, you know, kind of weak and effeminate. And of course, all these terms and all these descriptions have really, you know, kind of grotesque gender politics behind them, obviously. And then in the middle of the 20th century, thanks to a guy named Walter Jackson Bate, the great literary critic, Walter Jackson Bate, people started thinking of Keats differently because Bate portrayed him as this sort of tough kid who was always getting into fist fights and was a real dude and like liked to go and, you know, see boxing matches and get wasted with his friends on a Friday night. And so and um, that kind of that that idea of Keats had a lot of power and it had a lot of power, I think, particularly to a generation of scholars that like Keats grew up 
lower middle class. And so it was important for them to think that somebody from that, their class background could reach the, you know, Parnassian heights that John Keats ascended to. And so anyway, this is just all to say that there is a longstanding investment in a very macho idea of Keats within Keats studies. And when that ideal is compromised or people feel that it's not adequately represented, they get really pissed off. So a lot of this is a roundabout way of saying, little do you know, actually, a lot of people think they are John I do not think I'm John Keats at all. I actually have no identification, personal identification with Keats. You know, I just really, I really love him. I really dig him, but I don't feel identified with him. So yeah, you know, in a way, is literary criticism uh, negatively capable or do you need to be negatively capable in order to do good literary criticism? I think probably to do the kind of literary criticism that I like and that I do, I myself feel, as Keats says, very, very overwhelmed by the literature that I come into contact with. And I do experience it as a kind of absorption and a kind of dissolution of myself and my own perspective into the the work you know you could even call it if this doesn't sound too los angeles you could even call it a kind of channeling you know where i do feel a bit possessed by the stuff that i work on and so often when people say well why did you you know do this in this chapter of your academic monograph or why do you have this epigraph from George Oppen in your Keats book. It's like, I don't know, man, you know, that's just where that's where I was Mm -hmm. guided to go, you know, so I have a very unintellectual, very, very intuitive relationship to my own writing and my own thinking. And so yeah, I do think that there's something Keatsian about that. But I hesitate to say I would not say that I'm identified with Keats, even though so many people fancy themselves to be identified with Keats. (laughs) Yeah, that's so, I mean, I, my confession would be like, when I was reading the book the other day, I was sitting in a cafe and I read the ode um, on melancholy and, or maybe it was the one on indolence, but one of the odes, I, and you're, you're writing about it. I fully just like, I teared up and it just oh it got goodness. me so like, it like caught me off guard. But I think like, that's, that happens so many times when I read and it's just like, I, I have to stop and like, I just that's what I want when I read. But I don't think I, I'm always, I don't think it's because I identify with, I think it's a lot of the time that I'm like, oh my God, I'm this, this person is a whole different other person, but we have, like, I can see that. I get it. I was there. Um, I channeled them even though we're so far apart. And I think that, that, that presence of absence or like a, a proximity and distance um, is something that's so beautiful. And that's what I'm aiming for whenever I, I read. Yeah, me too. Me too. Oh, that makes me, two things make me happy about what you just said. One, that the book made you cry, but also that you were in a cafe because it seems as though. Yeah, <laughs> like, crazy. It's 2021. We're in the cafe. We're back in the cafes, right? Yeah, that's, it's nice Yeah, I was think in a cafe. You were physically inside. I was not outside. I was in a cafe <laughs> and there were other people. Um, it was, maybe that's why I cried. I was like, oh my God, there are other people around. It was so overwhelmed. Um, well, I, I want to move on to the odes because I think, I think that's, that's the meat of the book. Um, and you start out with Ode to a Nightingale. I do. Um, and I want to ask, I mean, we, maybe I can turn this into a double question. Um, but my, my first question would be, 
like, did you feel like you kind of had to start there? Um, or, I don't know, that's like Ode to a Nightingale and then Ode in a Grecian Urn. I feel like those are the ones that we know. And did you feel like, well, I have to start there before I can get to the ones that are lesser known? Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember. Um, I started writing the book. I started writing the Ode on the Nightingale chapter. I had just been in um, England giving a talk at Cambridge, and it was a very, very quick trip. It was like a 72-hour trip. So, you know, flew in, uh, spent the night in London, went to go see the William Blake exhibit at the... It was at the British, you know, was it the Tate? I think it was at the Tate. Um, I went to go see the William Blake, you know, exhibit with my friend Lily. And the next day went to Cambridge, gave a talk. And then the next day got on a plane and came back to Los Angeles. So it was a very, very quick trip. And I started writing it in the airport, the whole book. This is the very beginning of the book. I started writing it in the lounge, in the airport lounge, and then wrote, you know, the whole plane ride back to LA. So lots of very concentrated writing in a short amount of time. And I started with Odana Nightingale. So I'm trying to remember why I did that. And I think it must have been exactly what you're saying that just, you know, it's probably the second most famous. Well, let's see, there's probably three, the three most famous odes are obviously to Autumn, Ode Ode to Nightingale and Odana Grecian Urn. And because to Autumn doesn't have the word ode in its title. Mm-hmm. I think I probably assumed it should come last. A lot of people think that it was written last. Um, a lot of people argue that the Ode to Psyche was written first, but the dating of these is not clear because Keats wrote these poems in an incredibly compressed time frame, and nobody quite knows the exact order of their composition. But yeah, I probably did think, okay, we'll put Autumn last, we'll put Nightingale first, and we'll do Grecian Urn second, you know, on the kind of conventional wisdom of the mixtape that you should start out strong with the first track and then the second track should take it up a notch and then you have to come down a little bit. So Mm -hmm. obviously Grecian Urn is, I think, certainly the most famous ode. I think it's the, the ode on which I have the most controversial take. So I thought in that sense that putting it second might, you know, sort of, you know, amp up people's response or really involve people in the book at a certain, you know, at a kind of um, good point in their reading. But yeah, so I started with Nightingale. And I again, I'm trying to remember exactly what was going on. I was so jet lagged that I just sat down and was like, okay, let's do this, do this one first. It may be that it's the one I thought I had the clearest grip on. So it would be easy to just, you know, easy is the wrong word, but it would be um, relatively straightforward to just dive into it and start writing. Yeah, I I was trying to, like, call up memories of reading this in high school <laughs> or something. Um, I don't know, and which sadly, I don't think it was the last time I read it, but I think it was the last time I read it and was like, really trying to be in it mm-hmm. um, before I became, I was like an English undergrad and was like, well, I'm not a romanticist. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do my silly little modernist stuff and I don't have to read that. Um, and I, I don't know. I was, I loved your reading, but I, I want to talk about it in the sense that you, you come out with like a strong swing and you, you say, I don't know. It's like when we walk away from it, it's the beauty we remember much more than the painful encounter with a person on the very edge of finding life supportable. This is deliberate. Um, one of Keats's favorite themes is the persistence of beauty within the ugliest situations. Um, and I want, can you talk about how this is a theme, not just in Ode to a Nightingale, but throughout 
repeats because mm-hmm. this, it returns. Like, and I think that's something that one of the other things that I, I look for in literature. And I think one of the things that Keats has found, and it's that, you know, there, there is beauty amongst the suffering, possibly because of, or mm-hmm. maybe even in spite of, mm-hmm. or there, it's the poetry of Keats, as well as I think a lot of other poetry. It's, it's about something horrible. And it, what is the, what is something gross or the grotesque or the suffering that's included in the, in the poem? And how does it kind of turn this into a reminder of yeah, I mean, people kind of forget. I mean, maybe they don't forget, but you know, I my sense is that people sort of forget that "Ode to a Nightingale" is an intensely suicidal poem, right? I mean, it expresses that mm-hmm. wish, a sort of suicidal wish, very, very plainly. Right now, more than ever, seems it rich to die. So the poet or the speaker, or however you want to think about, it, sort of center of consciousness. I really don't like the language of the speaker, even though as a teacher, I often find myself using it. Um, this sort of like, you know, center constellation of consciousness in, that that organizes the poem expresses this wish to die in the midst of the incredibly intense sensation of hearing this nightingale sing, you know, while he's outside. Um, and, you know, the world seems to be kind of vanishing. And even though the world seems to be vanishing, it's also making itself extremely present through smell or through the feel of the the wind or through sound. And so this is very, um, this is one of Keats's sort of favorite it's not even really a theme. It's more how he organizes all of his poetry around the um, presence of things as they disappear or the disappearance of things just as they become, you know, um, sort of ex- uh, exaggeratedly present. So in that poem, yeah, you know, it just seems to be this this sense that in these moments when we feel ourselves to be intensely alive, we also feel ourselves to be very close to death. And we also feel ourselves longing for the final annihilation or evaporation of our personality. And in um, some of the letters when Keats is talking about the um, in some of the letters where Keats, Keats expresses the thoughts that will end up going into the poem Ode to Psyche, he says, um, do you not see how necessary a world of pains and difficulties is to, um, you know, essentially to give us a soul, to form the soul, right? To take a consciousness or to take a personality and make it into a soul. So it's clear that Keats, who had a very, very difficult life, and I think people do often forget just how difficult Keats's life was, Um and obviously he died very young, but even before that, he had quite a difficult life. Um, Keats, who had a very difficult life, nonetheless experienced a kind of helpless attachment to the world and a helpless attachment to the people in it and to the beauty of it. And in his poetry, he makes no bones about that, you know, that even though we feel ourselves suffering almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we also have um, a sense for beauty that is very, very hard to dull. It's very, very hard to take away. So all the poetry is interested in that. You know, all the poetry is interested in this sort of, again, the kind of persistence of the feeling for beauty, the desire for love, the desire for life, even in the midst of, you know, occasionally quite apocalyptic suffering. And so Ode to a Nightingale, you know, what's interesting about that poem is, as I said, I was writing about it in October of 2019. So well before the pandemic had had begun, or certainly well before it had reached any kind of global awareness. But that poem describes people 
um, you know, suffering in quarantine houses. There's an allusion to Paradise Lost in there where Milton also was talking about people suffering in quarantine houses. But that idea that, you know, wherever you are listening to the nightingale sing and thinking how lovely the nightingale song is, you're surrounded by pain and death at all times. You know, that's a condition of being human. That's just like the baseline condition of being human, right? We're mortal. We suffer, right? We get sick. We die. It happens. But it's also, um, and Keats is very aware of this, um, a condition that is made exponentially worse by 19th century political economy. So, you know, social critique is never far from any of these poems. And that's another thing about them that I that I find, you know, kind of irresistible. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I think it's definitely that, not not the theme, maybe the organizing principle that I think a lot of us, maybe we should all just read some Keats. I think there's, I don't, it's, I, you can't say it's been a terrifying few years or whatever. And I think, I, I mean, I roll my eyes when people say it because it's like, well, it's always been kind of terrifying, right? Like, it's been bad for a lot of people for a long time, but I think there, there's, there's still beauty and I, one of the things that I love is that, you know, like, Keats got to make a, a few more beautiful things. Then there there was nothing. In it, there, his poetry didn't exist, and then it did exist. And now there's something else that's beautiful in it. Um, yeah. And I, when you cut, you, at the end of the chapter, you talk about um, the story between, um, I don't know, a psychoanalyst or a psychologist and a patient. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you write about how... Um, uh, the patient or the the analyst is doing something that a good reader does, which is paying attention and hearing quote hearing the hope behind the complaint, the need behind the demand. Yeah. This is the good reader gives the text back to itself in the slightly altered, expanded form. And I think I think Keats is being a reader of the world, uh, not to make not too on the nose. Like as a poet, he's also a writer of the world. But the idea that you know when you're looking for something, you're paying attention. You see the beauty behind the suffering. Um, or the beauty in the suffering, or the beauty that is suffering. I don't, I don't know how to bring those two together in, in the best form, but they're they're connected intimately, and you you have to hear them together. Yeah, you know, I once was at a talk, and we, you know, we, the conversation in, during the discussion period settled around this question of what it is that you know we as literary critics do, and somebody said well, you know, you tell people, students, readers, right, whoever is paying attention to you at the time, you tell people what the text says, right, what it means. And I thought, that's not really what I think that I do. I think that, you know, maybe like a good analyst, right, I actually try to give the text back to itself in a slightly different form, you know. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what is it that a good therapist does, right? They try to hear beneath what it is that you've said, right? Or they try to construe it differently because as neurotic people, we fall into grooves of storytelling about ourselves and a good therapist, you know, or a good healer, if you want to use a more general term, 
gets you out of the rut of that particular story, you know, and helps you tell a different story about yourself or helps you understand the story that you've been telling in a different way. It helps you understand what your attachment to that story is, right? And then asks you a question like, if you had to relinquish that story or if you had to tell a different story about yourself, what would you lose and why are you afraid to lose it, right? So why are you afraid to let go of telling that version of of the story about yourself? So I love that dialogue between Heinz Kahoot and his, actually I'd say it's not his patient, but he's hearing a story about somebody else and their patient. The patient has expressed this completely, you know, bonkers wish for his therapist to not breathe so loudly, which is a crazy thing. This is like completely crazy, right? Don't breathe so loudly. And so the therapist has gotten really pissed off at the patient, you know, and judged the patient, right? And thought, well, this is a kind of tyrannical demand on, you know, the part of this narcissistic patient. And Kahoot actually says, well, you know, what other story could you tell about that? Right. What other story could you tell about the desire for the world to be more quiet? And then he comes up with his own reading on it. And so that is something that I try to do. I try to get out of the grooves of the stories that we've been telling about canonical literature, literature about which many, many stories exist. And I try to say something else or try to say something different that's not in violation of, you know, what the text actually says, which I think is important but just holds it up to a different angle or holds it up to a different kind of light. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I am a lo- the lone deconstructionist in my in my area. So I, oh my goodness. I am psychoanalyst. So I'm fully I'm down with that. I'm a I'm very down for, you know, seeing what else a text says. But, yeah. But you, that's not necessarily on the surface. That you have to read a little bit you have to change what you're hearing. Yeah. Hear, hear deeply. Um, well, moving on to the second ode, Ode on a Grecian Urn. Oh. I think <laughs> I want to ask you. You teased this a little earlier, and we don't. We don't. Ha- you don't have to give everything. We got to save something for for people to read themselves. And um, but you mentioned a controversial take. Can you kind of explain this controversial take? Um, and maybe explain what I guess what we've just talked about, like the main take. Like what's, what are you being controversial again? Well, so this is, this. So okay, the question of what constitutes controversy in this instance is slightly involved because Keats scholars have always understood Ode on a Grecian Urn to be a poem that if it is not about rape and sexual assault, nonetheless prominently features rape and sexual assault. But a wider reading public, or as I recently learned, most English professors, um, well, most a wider reading public and most English professors have actually not read the poem that way, by which I probably mean they haven't been taught the poem that way. So Mm -hmm. there is an existing division between people who spend a lot of time with that poem and have read a lot of criticism about it and people who kind of just know it as a very, very famous poem by a very famous writer. And so when I say my take is controversial, it's probably not controversial within romanticist circles. And I always get kind of, I mean, I feel like I have to defend the honor of my profession and of my fellow romanticists and say, romanticists have always understood that to be a poem in which sexual assault plays a very, very prominent and very meaningful role. But other people have read that chapter and thought, oh my God, you know, you've said something very scandalous that Odon a Grecian Urn is about rape and sexual violence. Well, 
you know, to go back to the question of, you know, explaining what the text says, Ode on a Grecian Urn is absolutely a poem about rape and sexual violence. So the poem describes a, an urn that Keats made up. No urn of this kind has ever been, no urn with, with um, these features has ever been found. So Keats appears to have made up this urn, even though he saw at the British Museum many examples of ancient Greek pottery. So he could have used an example of something he had actually seen, but no, he made this one up. So the the painting on the urn shows a number of things. One of the things it very prominently shows is um, uh, a group of men chasing after women who are described as maidens loath. And so the word loath means unwilling. Um, it's probably even stronger than that because as you can hear the echo of the word loath. So to be loath is to be absolutely horrified at the idea of doing something and to be in a state of profound uh, disgust or repulsion. So men are chasing these women who are absolutely unwilling to engage with these men. And then the other thing that you see is um, just one man chasing one woman and Keats describes them as being frozen in a a perpetual uh, pursuit. And so that moment in particular is, is derived from Ovid's Metamorphoses. And if you've read Ovid's Metamorphoses, you'll know that the poem is made up, it's an epic poem, and it stitches together story after story after story in which some woman goes running away from usually some god, although sometimes some human man, running away from someone who is trying to you know, have his way with her and through various kinds of divine intervention, she is saved, though, you know, the nature of her salvation is somewhat ambiguous by being turned into a tree or a lake or a bird. And so those moments, too, exist in a kind of suspended animation. So basically what Keats shows on the urn is, you know, uh, two scenes of rape arrested just as it's about to happen and thus preserved for all eternity on, on this art object. And so the poem becomes an occasion on my reading, the poem becomes an occasion for Keats to ask these really, really hard questions that I think people are thinking about today in new ways. You know, what does it mean to call something beautiful, to call a work of art beautiful if it represents things that are horrific? You know, and what does it mean to enjoy or consume works of art or works of popular culture. So it doesn't have to be high art, you know, it could be something like Game of Thrones in which, you know, acts of horrific dehumanizing violence are portrayed. And so people are really interested in this, these questions now. And a lot of our contemporary conversations around things like trigger warnings um, take us back to these questions. You know, does art have a responsibility to you know, not portray harm because portraying harm in some ways recapitulates it? Or does art have an absolute responsibility to portray harm so that we can't forget that it exists as if we ever could forget that it exists, right? And then sort of second, the sort of trigger question that comes out of this, the question about trigger warnings is, should students in particular be told before they encounter a work of art that it contains things that might be upsetting to them. And that's been a real hot button issue in our, um, you know, modern version of the culture wars. It's always confused me a little bit (laughs) Um, because as a person who regularly teaches material that has very upsetting content, I've never thought that 
it would be strange in any way to simply tell my students, hey, you know, you're about to go and read Afrobens Orinoco. You should know that it, um, you know, contains the scene of extreme racist violence and torture, you know, heads up. Right. So it has always perplexed me that people seem to think it's somehow a violation of good liberal humanism to tell people they're about to encounter something that's extremely, extremely upsetting. Right. I, I don't really know why that should be so anathema to the project of teaching. So it's not to say, oh, I'm pro trigger warnings per se, but I don't think that they should be dismissed out of hand. And so that chapter on Ode on a Grecian Urn, you know, in my, on my view, simply describes what's happening in the poem very straightforwardly. You know, I don't think I'm imposing anything on the poem that is not there in a very explicit way. And then it goes on to say something about trigger warnings and how, whereas most, um, not most, but say, whereas some uh, professors and teachers think that trigger warnings are intended to shut down discussion and to limit the kinds of things that can be said in a classroom. I actually think that's not true. I think that what students are actually looking for, if they're looking for trigger warnings, is a chance to insist that aspects of their own experience are relevant to the discussion, you know? And actually, I think they're meant to bring more into the classroom. They're not actually meant to limit what comes into the classroom. So this then in the chapter, and this is, so here's like the controversial take, or maybe this is an aspect of the controversial take, in the chapter, this then leads into me telling this story about how when I was in high school and I was in a uh, Latin class, I was sexually harassed by my Latin teacher. So, you know, I was 17. He was probably around 50. And he very straightforwardly propositioned me. And I, you know, I was 17. I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, I mean, it was a very different time. You know, I we were not, me and my fellow students, like we were not literate in, you know, the sort of understanding of what sexual harassment was or, you know, like what you would do if somebody, you know, approached you in a particular way. And so we, I of course told my friends about it and we all thought it was maybe kind of funny, you know, I mean, we didn't really understand what was going on. And I think we already had a sense that men, particularly older men were in general gross and ridiculous and there was nothing to be done about them. We just sort of like brushed it off. But the harassment intensified and then it became punitive when I didn't respond or, you know, didn't take him up on his offer to have sex with him or whatever, you know, so the harassment intensified and became punitive. And, uh, you know, the fallout of that ended up being that I gave up studying Latin, which had been something that I absolutely loved. And I had wanted to be um, you know, a classics student. I had wanted to keep reading Latin and then I, I just completely um, gave it up because it became associated for me with this experience that I now understand to be traumatic, though I didn't understand it that way at the time. At the time, I just thought it was, you know, some weird thing that went down, which is often how we experience trauma in the moment, as some weird thing. And then later you start to realize, oh, that actually transformed my life in, in a negative mm-hmm. way. So all those things come together in the chapter. And it, um, I think what I'm trying to say in the chapter is not at all that, you know, Keats is he's certainly not pro, you know, sexual assault. He's asking us to understand that the history of Western aesthetics is intimately involved in the history of sexual violence. And that's one of the things that makes Keats very, very modern. And so to me, it makes sense to 
to talk about all these things together. Yeah, I think at the, at the end, you, you bring up the idea that, you know, this is not like, this isn't just the tragedy here in the Ovidian chase. The tragedy here is not that the girl never gets caught or, you know, the tragedy isn't this one instance. It's that the impossibly large tragedy of civilization itself. Yeah. There's, it's not an isolate. It's the cosmos. It's the ordering of our knowledge. It's the ordering of like all these stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. So when Keats says at the end, right, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, or this, the, and I do actually think Ode on a Grecian Urn should be understood as having a speaker. I do think there is a speaker in that poem who is, is a kind of character and, and who is not Keats. But right, he says at the end, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, right? Or he says that the urn is saying that there's some, um, question about who's saying what because the textual history of the poem is somewhat complicated and where the quotation marks go nobody quite knows um but you know to this just just rephrasing what you just said right yes the truth of civilization is this the as frederick jameson says right the underside as always the underside of culture is blood torture war and death right and i think it's a poem i think odon agrishner is a poem that understands that yeah and Maybe I didn't understand it before, but as soon as I you read it, I I said, yeah, I get that. Now I'm there. Oh, I'm good. there with you. Good. Oh, that's you nice taught to it to me. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. Um, well, I, I want to move on to a different um, to one of the other odes, um, and maybe the one I don't know. This one just hit me because I of my life. But the ode <laughs> on indolence. The ode on indolence um, was great. Um, or I don't know if the ode on indolence is great itself. Right. The ode on indolence is actually not great. <laughs> yeah. But your writing about it was so good. Um, and I want to ask, like, what is, why is it not great? Like, what is indolence and what's going on in it? And you talk about, like, if the ode was something else. Yeah. Um, and you bring in some different authors and, um, like, wh- how would it have been great? Um, because when you were talking about it, I was like, oh, my God, like, this, I now have to go to the bathroom and cry. This was insane. Oh my God. It's so, it's so funny. A friend of mine wrote to me after he read the book, he had also, I think had his second dose of the, um, Moderna vaccine. I can't remember mm. if it was Moderna or Pfizer, but yeah, so exactly. So he was really, you know, he was feeling a lot of pain. Um, and he read the book in a kind of, you know, delirium and then, uh, either called or emailed his ex-girlfriend. And so he, and so he told me that. And I said somewhat jokingly, I said, Oh, my work here is done. You know, like I achieved. Um, so I actually, you know, I actually don't think that it's a, it's a book that necessarily, you know, is written to make you contact an ex, but it's certainly a book that is written, um, to make you cry in the bathroom 100%. Because when I wrote it, I was crying in the bathroom all the time. So, um, and it gave me, as um, as my advisor and my grad school advisor, Lauren Berlant, used to say, it gave me the opportunity to be organized by something else. So writing the book mm-hmm. allowed me to be organized by something else. And so then crying in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I guess, you know, here's the thing. Why is it a bad poem? Well, indolence literally means feeling no pain. And John Keats felt great pain every day of his life, you know, not just because he was dying of tuberculosis, but because he was an extremely emotionally overwrought person. Um, As much as he was incredibly loving and his friends adored him, he seems to have been just, you know, like 
you're the best guy, you know? I mean, people really, really loved Keats. He was very generous. He was always loaning his friends money, even though he had no money himself. He had a high tolerance for um, a lot of bad behavior. A lot of his friends were, you know, kind of really difficult characters, um, you know, very grandiose, very demanding, um, or again, often needing to, um, you know, kind of mooch off him in various ways. So he had a high tolerance for kind of bad behavior among his friends. He was very, very loving, very generous, very giving, very kind, um, a very good uh, brother to his younger siblings. You're just a kind of all around good guy. But he was also very, very, very difficult. And he was difficult, particularly to uh, Fanny Brom, this woman that he was in love with. And they lived in the same house for a time. They were like, you know, literally the next door neighbors and shared a wall. Um, Keith was very um, exigent with her. And Keats scholars used to sort of make apologies for it and say, you know, he was dying. So some of the stuff that he says to her, like, you must be mine to die upon the rack if I want you, you know, Keats scholars used to say, well, he was dying. So, of course, he would say all these sort of obsessive and paranoid and possessive things to her. But I think it's just, you know, how he experienced being in love. He experienced being in love as a state of great extremes, sort of being in extremists, right? So um, he swings very wildly from the helpless infatuation to um, this sort of all-encompassing paranoia and a desire to be uh, quite punitive with Fanny for her various transgressions. And so indolence, again, the state of feeling no pain, it was completely not a native disposition for Keats. Mm -hmm. So when he comes to write an ode to indolence, he sort of doesn't know what the hell it is. Right? <laughs> he was just like, I totally does not know what the hell it is. So he's at a disconnect from the thing he's trying to write about. But for whatever reason he's got in his head that he's going to write an ode to indolence and, you know, about how he's so lazy. Um, you know, he's lying in bed and he's kind of thinking like, oh, you know, I should really get out of bed and pursue my great muse poetry and pursue fame and do all this stuff. But, you know, I really don't feel like getting out of bed and we've all been there. But the thing is Keats really hadn't been there. He was incredibly prolific. He worked incredibly hard. He was pursuing the muse morning, noon and night. He established very, very strict um, writing protocols for himself. So um, he would have to write a certain number of lines a day. He would have to try out all these different genres. He would have to master all these different forms. So he really, like, really, really, you know, like busted his ass writing poetry and working on poetry. So he was not lazy and his life was full of, um, you know, very dramatic uh, sensation at all times. So he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's the main problem with the ode. And so the ode kind of sucks, just sort of falls apart. Um, what I then want to say, because, you know, I had to write a whole chapter about the poem. And I thought, well, what do you say about this poem? There's like really not very good, you know? And so then I try in that chapter to imagine a more interesting version of indolence that Keats is not able to imagine, which is not to say that I outdo Keats, you know, that's not all the case. Obviously, I was inspired to have these thoughts because of Keats in the first place and because of the poem. So the poem, while not necessarily very good, is nonetheless quite provocative if you allow yourself to be provoked by it. So I actually start thinking about Fanny Braun, who, in contrast to John Keats, seems to have been a person much more comfortable with you know, feeling no pain or much more comfortable with a, a certain kind of detached 
I wouldn't quite call it easygoing, but let's say detached, um, equanimous, cool-headed existence that you can read as a form of what Lauren Berlant would also call affect management, right? So for some of us, and now I am speaking personally, for some of us who, if we let ourselves, would be as keyed up by everything as John Keats was, it's it's more livable or it's more sustainable to take a step back from that kind of intensity and try to live your life in a way that doesn't burn you out. And that includes your attachments to others. So one, and so I try to think about that as indolence, you know, so maybe indolence is actually, for some of us, a way of, you know, of making life and also making love bearable. Because if we really let ourselves go, you know, there'd be no coming back from it. And we maybe know that about ourselves. So that chapter opens with a letter that Jenny Marx um, wrote to Karl Marx before they were married, back when her name was not yet Jenny Marx. Um, and she is a sort of am- is an amazing, amazing letter. He's pissed at her for something. He seems to be pissed at her maybe for flirting with somebody else, which is also something that Keats was preoccupied by, the notion that Fanny Braun was going out and flirting with other guys. So but he's pissed at her about something, you know, maybe she's too flirtatious, or she doesn't take him seriously enough, she doesn't treat their love with the kind of deference that it deserves. And so she writes this amazing letter, it's very, very long. And she says, you know, look, you come at me really hard. You know, you come at me with all this poetry. And Karl Marx did write Jenny Marx a lot of poetry. You come at me with all this poetry. You come at me with all this passion, with all this intensity, with all this um, imperiousness, with all this force. And I know very well that if I were to to believe in you, if I were to believe in the intensity of your love, if I were to believe in all the beautiful things that you say, I would be so far gone that if you were to ever stop loving me, if you were to ever abandon me, I would be destroyed. There would be there would be no coming back from it. So instead, she says, I cling to the you know, world of practicalities. And this is the thing that really interests me about the letter. She says, you know, I operate in the world of prose. You operate in the world of poetry and I operate in the world of prose because I need to protect myself from the danger that your love poses to me. So I think of indolence as a kind of prosiness, you know? Um, and so there is then, again... Um, it's it's kind of implicit in the chapter, though I think it comes out again at the very end of the book in the postscript. There's an implicit identification between what what Jenny Marks in that instance is describing as a kind of emotional prose and the work of literary criticism, which is not literature and can't quite go as gung-ho into the world of great and powerful feeling as great literature itself can. And so again, I said, well, you know, I don't identify with Keats. I do have a very strong identification, you know, with not necessarily with Fanny Braun, but kind of with the voice of Fanny Braun that we get in the very few of her letters that exist. None of her letters to Keats exist, but her letters to his younger sister exist. And she is, I feel like I recognize her voice in my own temperament. So the chapter on on indolence becomes a way of maybe kind of defending that position you know, against its criticism by Keats. Yeah, I 
I was swept away. I cried in the in the bathroom of the cafe, and I was like, I, I need to be more indolent. This is driving me insane. The, the heat of the Brooklyn summer, I, the, the maskless people, it was a lot. Uh, yeah. But I, I was blown away. <laughs> That's all I can say. You know, it's tricky. I mean, I grew up, I'm from New York City, you know, and I was a young child during the 90s, which means that the kind of predominant affect of the 90s, which was deadpan detachment, was always presented to me as the ideal. So, you know, one day you'll grow up and you too will want to be deadpan and detached and, you know, wearing a slip dress and, you know, whatever all the cool stuff you're supposed to do when you're like, you know, 10 years older than I was in 1992. So I have always understood a certain kind of coolness and neutrality to be, again, the ideal, the thing to which to aspire. And it's very difficult for me when I encounter a different emotional regime, when I encounter, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, an emotional regime that is much more expressive, much more demonstrative. That's pretty tricky for me. You know, I don't, I don't quite understand it. And so when you say that, like, oh, the hot Brooklyn summer, I think, oh, yeah, I've totally been there. I've totally been in the hot Brooklyn summer, you know, trying to match, desperately trying to match my native affect to the the mood of the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a very recognizable experience to me. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad that we can share that. Um, well, I, I want to move on because um, we're, we're sort of running out of time, but I, I think I want to get to the last chapter um not the conclusion the last official ode chapter on to autumn yeah um because i i don't know this it was going out with a bang i think you so you just like i said you came out swinging on whichever other one ode on a Grecian or something this one the first thing you say about it is to autumn is perfect and unforgivable yeah um and i'm i agree i i love this ode i i remember i remember reading it in high school in like my AP world history class or something. Um, and I, I just want to ask like, what is perfect and unforgivable about it? And then at the end you talk about how it is a love poem because it asks so mu- for so much, none of it for itself. And like, what is it asking for? And how does it that register with its, with what it's talking about, about beauty and about like that, even though we see so much terror around us and like, you know, like, the destruction of the planet, the destruction of people, the destruction of, of life itself. Like we are irresistibly drawn to beauty and that we can't, mm-hmm. that's not something we can get away from. And may, like, we shouldn't be trying to get away from it. There's like, there's not a, you can't just be like, I don't know, those cynics or people who just like the non-dupes in the, in the Lacanian sense who say like, <laughs> all of you are, you know, like you're being tricked by beauty and media and whatever. Like, yeah. Go look at these images of horrible things going on but like I gotta read my poetry and I I think that's what I want to ask about yeah and you know it's important I think to say that for Keats you know our persistent attraction to beauty or our attachment to the world is not redemptive it's part Mm -hmm. of right it's part of the contradiction that we inhabit that the world is horrible and the world is also beautiful you know is all all these these things are true at the exact same time, right? And so this is what it means to inhabit a contradiction. And the contradiction yeah. is 
inseparable in this particular case, in our case, in Keats's case, you know, in the case of the world for the last however many centuries, the contradiction is inseparable from and indeed absolutely underwritten by capital. So, you know, when Keats comes to write to Autumn, it's in the immediate aftermath of something called the Peterloo Massacre which we could talk about for days on end. Um, and the Peter- My AP World History class. In your AP right World now. History class. You go, My AP World History class did not cover the Peterloo Massacre. I, I remember it was just like World War One and Two <laughs> all day, every day. I, I feel like I still know way too much about, you know, World War One and World War Two. Although it's probably not possible to know too much about those things, but, you know, um, yeah. Anyway. Like every now and then, you know, somebody will say something about Chamberlain and I'll be like, man, I remember all that stuff. (laughs) No, I was never taught the Peterloo Massacre. Okay. So the Peterloo Massacre happened in Manchester in in August of 1819 um, when a extremely enormous group of most of peaceful protesters and mostly peaceful protesters or initially peaceful protesters gathered in St. Peter's Field, which is an area in Manchester, to, you know, do what? I mean, ostensibly to um, call for an expansion of the electoral franchise, but it was a demonstration like most political demonstrations that had much wider resonance. So people were essentially showing up to be counted. You know, they were essentially showing up to say, um, you know, the economy is in the tank. These wars, namely the Napoleonic Wars, have absolutely decimated the country. Um, the, you know, emergence and kind of metastasis of the factory system is destroying our way of life, right? Uh, you know, where we have no money for bread, the price of bread is completely, you know, over the top. So this is a kind of um, somewhat like Occupy Wall Street, you know, was a show of political passion in the name of nothing totally specific, right? Sort of in the most general sense, in the name of human freedom, right? So people are showing up to say like the way that we live is insupportable and it has to change. And there was no um, police force in England at the time. The police force emerges formally in the 1830s. So instead, what there are, are these kind of local militias that operate kind of, um, you know, at the behest of the local magistrates or judges. So they're essentially gangs, you know, they're, they're gangs, um, that are armed. Um, and, you know, so I often say, you know, kind of like the Proud Boys or something, you know, who were told on the day of the Peterloo massacre to, you know, stand back and stand by, by the local Manchester magistrates. And then they were, um, encouraged to let loose, on these peaceful protesters. And they did. And a a number of people were killed. It's still not entirely um, known how many people were killed, but a number of people were killed. Some children were killed. Um, Some siblings, um, you know, some members of the same family, um, pregnant woman um, was not killed on that day, but she died several months later, a couple months later. uh, And thousands of people were injured. So, you know, these people are basically caught where they are. They're in a tiny um, hemmed in walled around field and they're attacked by men on horseback wielding, uh, you know, swords and, all, you know, people are sort of have their limbs hacked off and stuff like that. It's an extremely uh, horrific event. And the people of England, the people of Britain were shocked that this thing happened. 
And it was thought for a precious few moments that this event would lead to a uh, English revolution like the one that had happened in France 20 years earlier. And then that didn't happen. And indeed, the country entered into a period of even greater political repression and kind of stays there for a while. So Keats encounter, you know, hears this news like everybody else and is, is you know, kind of roundly horrified and writes a letter to his brother, however, in which he mentions it very lightly and, and it almost seems like just a tiny bit dismissive, although, you know, you can't really know what's going on through Keats's head. But the next thing he does is he writes this poem to Autumn which is beautiful, beautiful poem that seems to have absolutely no political content whatsoever and certainly doesn't talk about the Peterloo massacre in any direct way. Plenty of literary critics have, you know, wasted their blood, sweat, and tears trying to claim that, in fact, To Autumn is actually a poem about the Peterloo Massacre, but, like, don't believe it for a second. It's totally, it's completely not a poem about the Peterloo Massacre. Still, it is a poem that I think self-consciously happens in a world where the Peterloo massacre happens. You know, I say that about, I use that same phrase in the chapter on Ode on a Grecian Urn, where like, you know, this is a poem that happens in a world where rape happens, you know, and it knows that. And so similarly to Autumn is a beautiful poem that happens knowingly in a world where terrible things happen. And it asks us to dwell in that contradiction and to experience our to experience its own beauty and then to experience the beauty of the world or to reflect upon the beauty of the world as things that we cannot help but notice, feel, and love. And what is what's to be done? And so in that chapter, I kind of counter the poem to Autumn with passages that are interspersed throughout the chapter from um, Diane de Prima's revolutionary letter number seven, which says, yeah, which I've got, I mean, that all of, all of Diane de Prima's work um, and all of revolutionary letters is really, really important to me that, you know, that poem says, you know, look, here's how you keep yourself ready for the revolution. And she says, oh, here's, you know, where you go to fire a gun, like, you know, here's how, you know, you do this and here's how you do that. But she says at the very end, um, you know, don't get it twisted. What wins this war is our love for each other and how we take care of each other, you know. And so I think that that poem, in a way, it shows us how to vault out of the contradiction that Keats's poem describes. So I think in the chapter I say it does to Autumn one better. But it, and so maybe that's a kind of like mean way. I don't I don't mean it to be like a dig against Keats. It's actually like that's one of the things that poetry does in relationship to other poetry. It shows us how to get out of a situation or in this case a contradiction that an older poem might describe or another poem might describe. So I end up saying that, you know, Diane de Prima essentially offers us a way to transcend what is what is described so powerfully into autumn. But yeah, no that that poem is a real it's a banger. <laughs> I had a teacher yeah. in college who got up, um, my mentor, Paul Fry, my college mentor, Paul Fry, great romanticist, uh, on the day that he was supposed to lecture on that poem, he just, without saying anything, like without saying good morning, you know, without doing anything, he just got up on this stage, uh, went to the lecture and read to Autumn and then said, well, there's one of the most beautiful poems in the English language. And I don't know what else I have to say about that. And I loved that, you know, because I think that that comment actually 
puts you in the same position the poem puts you in, you know, okay, now you have to sit with this, you have to sit with this beauty and experience it as discomfort, you know, not as comfort, mm-hmm. but actually as something that unsettles you. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have had many experiences in all of my literature classes where we read something and it's, nobody knows what to say, but I think that is exactly, you just have to sit with it. Yeah. Don't, don't talk yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, I think I have, I have one final question. Okay. Um, not about the book, but um, what are you thinking about now? Um, what's, do you have any, any constellating thoughts or congealing things going on? Yeah, well, so speaking of the Peterloo Massacre, um, I think that what I'm going to do next is write a book about something that happened right after the Peterloo Massacre, a couple months after the Peterloo Massacre, called the Cato Street Conspiracy. And the Cato Street Conspiracy was a plot to kidnap and assassinate members of the British government <laughs> by a, a group of guys who were um, what is characterized as Spensonians, meaning they were followers of the radical socialist agitator Thomas Spence. And uh, Spence is, Thomas Spence is just an incredibly fascinating guy, really, you know, kind of amazing. Um, he wrote radical poetry. He published a radical journal. He was in and out of prison. He counterfeited money with um, images of William Pitt, the prime minister, being hung by the neck. Um, he, uh, you know, this described um, sort of an early advocate for what we would now call, um, you know, prison abolition and, and the abolition of the police. And so there was this, he had this group of followers, they called themselves or they didn't call themselves, but, you know, they are often called the Spensonians. And so a group of Spensonians decided that they were going to assassinate members of the British government. And they were found out, they were caught, and um, some of them were killed, executed, and some of them were deported to Australia. And I decided that I was going to write about the Cato Street conspiracy, which I do talk about it a little bit in the Keats book, but I was in Manchester in August of 2019 for a conference. And I went to um, the the People's History Museum of Manchester, which is kind of a, a museum. I hope I have that name right. It's called the People's History Museum. It's called something like that. And it's a, it's a museum essentially devoted to, to the history of working class movements. Incredible museum. Although it does have to toe a very interesting line um, where (laughs) it has to kind of like negotiate around the fact that the British Labour Party has become an establishment party and a kind of neoliberal party in in a way that it was not once. And so it doesn't quite know what to do with that history. But there's a room or a kind of like very large diorama, I guess you would call it of a meeting room of the sort that the Cato Street conspirators would have met in. And, you know, sort of dark, and there are all these um, sort of trade union symbols, which have a certain kind of occult history and resonance to them in, in the room. And I was just completely struck dumb by it and thought it was so wild. And I obviously knew what the Cato Street conspiracy was before, but I had never um, felt this sort of powerful interest in it that the museum inspired in me. So I think I'm going to write a book about the Cato Street conspiracy. I think that's my plan. Well, I think that sounds like a great plan. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if, if it becomes a book and becomes something, I would love to have you back and we can talk about it again and and maybe some more bars and some more keys. Cool. I will come back anytime.
We can talk more about the uh, hot Brooklyn summer. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot to say about that. Um, and uh, I'm just outside on the sidewalk screaming constantly and just like pouring sweat. Um, yeah. Oh, those are, that makes me very nostalgic and very homesick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm like having to get inside. I, I just, people listening to the podcast can't see, but I just like rolled up my sleeves and I'm like dying. Um, <laughs> Well, it was great to talk to you, um, and I, I cannot urge people enough to go get this book and just like read it, um, oh, and like maybe I'll do public readings uh, on the hot Brooklyn streets. In a oh cafe. man, I wish I could do that. I mean, that's been there. You know, where where to begin with the you know like the small bummers of the pandemic as opposed to the world historical and, you know, like ones and the social catastrophes, but certainly one of the small bummers that means nothing to anybody but me, and in that sense is quite trivial, has been that I haven't been able to read the book in public. And I had really been psyched to do that. Well, maybe you can do it when it comes back up. It, yeah. We'll figure something we'll, out. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I am, I am hoping I can get back to New York sometime soon. I, I miss it. Well... Like I said, it was great talking to you. Um, I am Britt Edelin for the New Books and Literary Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm talking with Anahid Nusessian for her book, Keats's Odes, uh, Lover's Discourse, out through the University of Chicago Press earlier this year. Um, thank you for listening.